Please listen carefully. Salutations, toppers, and welcome to episode 44 of the Turn of Phrases podcast. Thank you for joining me once again to explore some etymology. Or, if this happens to be your first time here, then welcome to the show. Today's theme is a colorful one because we're discussing phrases with, well, colors in them. Before we get started, I just want to remind y'all that I have a Patreon now. My weekly episodes will always remain 100% free. But if you want bonus stuff, check out the Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes. Without further ado, let's color outside the lines to find today's phrases, origins, history, and more. Let's begin with the saying, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. This idiom means that when you're unsatisfied with something, it seems like others have it better than you. It's human nature to covet things. We want the biggest, the fastest, the whateverest. We work hard to achieve what we think is the best, and then we're happy. Until we see someone else's version of the best, and then we want that. But there's a catch. What we don't see when we see something to covet is what sacrifices the other person had to make to get it. Maybe they got a faster car by giving up time with their family to work more. Maybe their giant fancy house came with huge payments they're so far behind on that they can't afford to pay for their child's college anymore. Now, before I continue, let me say that I just made those examples up, and I'm not trying to pass any sort of judgment on people who work a lot or buy big houses. And there's nothing wrong at all with wanting the best of something. This idiom is about being sure to examine things closely before you decide you want them, especially if you only want them because someone else has them. For all you know, the person who has a faster car or a bigger house they may covet your life as one they see as simpler and less stressful. This is the crux of the saying. It's not wrong to want something, but it can be dangerous to just assume that all that glitters is gold. So where did green grass get its connection to this sentiment? Well, it actually started way back in old-timey times with a harvest, not a yard. In the year 1 BC, a Roman poet named Publius Ovidius Naso or Ovid for short, wrote the following in Art of Love. Quote, the harvest is always richer in another man's field. End quote. So people have been comparing and coveting growth for quite some time. Now, this was a metaphorical field and harvest. He's actually talking about adultery, but it is believed to be the first use in writing for this saying. As for the grass, it seems to have not become the specific source of desire until much, much later. In 1924, there was a song published by musicians Raymond Egan and Richard Whiting. It was called The Grass is Always Greener in the Other Fellow's Yard. And the chorus sums up this idiom quite nicely. I'll read it to you because I'm even worse at singing than I am at pronouncing words. Here's the chorus. Quote, the grass is always greener in the other fellow's yard. The little row we have to hoe, oh boy, that's hard. 
But if we all could wear green glasses now, it wouldn't be so hard to see how green the grass is in our own backyard. End quote. And with that, let's move on to today's next phrase, the pot calling the kettle black. This idiom describes a person who's criticizing someone for something that they themselves are doing or have done. If you think about cooking vessels, many of them are made of black materials or are coated in a black coating of some sort that's usually a non-stick material. Cast iron is a major one, and it's been around since the 5th century BC. Obviously not all cooking vessels are black, but a good many of them are, and this is where the imagery of this idiom comes from. But when did it come from? As far as anyone seems to be able to tell, the print version came from Spanish writer Miguel de Cervantes' Don Quixote. He wrote, well, this is a translation, but just pretend I'm speaking Spanish. Quote, Said the pan to the pot, get out of there, black eyes. End quote. In 1620, an Irishman named Thomas Shelton translated Don Quixote into English, and this was the first time it had ever been translated. He wrote the passage as, quote, You are like what is said that the frying pan said to the kettle. Avant, black brows. End quote. In this story, the passage is labeled a proverb, so this wasn't the invention of the idiom, just the first known use in writing. Therefore, it had to be a known saying by the time Cervantes wrote a version of it down. Now, let's catch someone red-handed. To catch someone red-handed means that you catch them in the act of doing something. This saying can be traced back to at least 15th century Scotland, and it has a literal beginning. It meant that people were caught committing a bloody crime with blood on their hands, giving them literal red hands. It first shows up in print in 1432 in the Scottish Acts of Parliament of James I, which said, quote, that the offender be taken red-handed may be pursued and put to the knowledge of an assis, end quote. An assis is a trial by jury, for those of you who, like me, didn't know that. Anyway, that was more of a literal use. As far as being a bit more idiomatic, we have to travel ahead about 400 years. In Sir Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, we find the following quote. I did but tie one fellow, who was taken red-handed and in the fact to the horns of a wild stag. End quote. Not only did this help the saying shift from red hand to red-handed, it increased the popularity because Ivanhoe was so popular. That's really all there is to this one. It's pretty straightforward. So now, let's get tickled pink. Okay, toppers, if you're even remotely ticklish, then you know that being tickled is both amazing and horrible, because it makes you laugh, which is good, but it makes you laugh until you hurt and can barely breathe, which is bad. However, tickle has more than one meaning, as many words do, and the important definition in this case is the one that means to appeal or to please. When people are happy, they sometimes blush or appear to turn a shade of pink. And it's this physical reaction combined with the pleasurable laughter that tickling can bring that gives us the saying. While tickle has been used in this way since at least the 17th century, the addition of pink doesn't appear to show up in writing until 1910, where we find it in the Daily Review, an Illinois newspaper. The article was titled, Lauder Tickled at Change, and included this quote. 
Grover Laudermilk was tickled pink over Kinsella's move in buying him from St. Louis. End quote. Since newspapers report on things and they didn't offer an explanation for the phrase, it's believed that the idiom already existed by then, but just hadn't been used idiomatically in print prior to this article. I couldn't find any more details on this one, so now I'm going to tell you a little white lie. We've all done it, toppers. We've stretched the truth just a little to keep from hurting someone's feelings or to be polite, which is what a white lie is. A small, innocent lie. But what makes these little untruths a type of lie that most people don't mind? And what does the color white have to do with it? Well, it goes way back to when magic and sorcery were a big part of daily life, and the difference in white and black magic, also known as light and dark magic. White magic was used to help and to heal. Black magic was used to harm and destroy. This ended up translating to lies because, let's be honest, not all lies are bad lies. If someone is a little dishonest but has good intentions, then they're attempting to help someone, or at the very least, not hurt them. Other types of lies can be malicious, and so they are not only seen as more evil, but they're seen as dark, or black, as the opposite of the good or white lies. Even though the belief of good being light and evil being dark has been around since way back in old-timey times, the term white lie doesn't seem to show up in print until the 18th century. We find it in The Gentleman's Magazine, a periodical from London that was published from 1731 until 1922. In an article from 1741, we find this quote, A certain lady of the highest quality makes a judicious distinction between a white lie and a black lie. A white lie is that which is not intended to injure anybody in his fortune, interest, or reputation, but only to gratify a garrulous disposition and the itch of amusing people by telling them wonderful stories. End quote. So, from making magic to making nice, this phrase has a long history. And now, it's time for today's metaphorical moment. It's just a metaphor, dude. It's a metaphor. Curious metaphor. A metaphor. That's just a metaphor. The colorful metaphor we're exploring today is silver bullet. This is used to describe something that's a direct or easy solution to a problem. Another way to say it would be a solution that seems almost magical. And that's because silver bullets got their start as a magical solution to a big problem. Werewolves. These hairy beasts were apparently a big enough problem in old-timey times that folks wanted a magical fix to their supernatural problem. Now, whether or not you believe in werewolves, one thing is for certain. Silver bullets have been in use since at least the late 17th century. If we go back to Sir Walter Scott, we find what may not have been the first use in writing, but was likely the one that made the metaphorical version of silver bullets more popular. In his work, Tales of My Landlord, which was written over several years in the early 1800s, he wrote, quote, Conspicuous by his black horse and white feather, the object of aim to everyone, he seemed as if he were impassive to their shots. The superstitious fanatics looked upon him as a man gifted by the evil spirit with supernatural means of defense. Many a Whig that day loaded his musket with a dollar cut into slugs, in order that a silver bullet, such was their belief, might bring down the persecutor of the Holy Kirk, 
on whom lead had no power. End quote. And if that didn't make silver bullets popular enough, then let's jump ahead to a popular television show from the 1940s and 50s. The Lone Ranger typically left a silver bullet behind after putting a stop to the dastardly plans of the ne'er-do-wells. He didn't shoot people with them, he merely used them as symbols for justice. And to that, I say, hi-ho silver, away, to the book for today's familiar quotation. Okay, toppers, I've got the book here open to a section of works by Samuel Clemens, also known as Mark Twain. This is a quote from his work, The Disappearance of Literature, and it says, A classic is something that everybody wants to have read and nobody wants to read. That's pretty snarky, Mr. Clemens, but I do like it. Thank you for giving us today's familiar quotation. That's going to do it for episode 44. Thank you for lending me your ears today to turn some phrases. As I always do, I hope you enjoyed the episode and that you learned something along the way. You can connect with me and fellow language lovers on Twitter and Facebook. Just look up Turn of Phrases on either site, or go to turnofphrases.com for links and more information. If you want to send me a message or topic suggestions, you can email me which is brisky at turnofphrases.com, or use my website's contact form. My website also has details about all the music I use in the show. If you had a good time listening today, please consider subscribing or leaving a rating and review. Also, if you know someone who'd enjoy the show, please tell them about it to help spread the word. Thanks again for listening to the Turn of Phrases podcast, researched, written, hosted, and produced by me, Brisky. Until next time, toppers, stay colorful. Toodaloo. And now... This is... Let me rephrase. And put to the knowledge of an Aussie. No. (laughs) And put to the knowledge of an Aussie. Assis. That is so many S's in that word. And put to the knowledge of an Aussie. No, an Assisi. Assisi. And the important definition in this case is that one thing, where we find it in the Daily Review, an Illinois newspaper, an Illinois newspaper, an Illinois newspaper, an Illinois, Illinois, Illinois. Why am I suddenly not able to say that? An Illinois newspaper. The article was titled Lauder Tickled. Nope. Well, it goes back. Nope. Even though the belief of being. Nope. And now it's time. Nope. Okay, toppers, I've got the book here, and today we've opened it to a section of Mark Twain's works also known as Samuel Clemens. Nope.